Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, today, Phil, I'm excited. And I'm excited because we have our first uh, in-studio guest, uh, Valentine Lowe, who's the Times Royal Correspondent, uh, who's written a lot about Meghan and Harry and broken a number of stories. Uh, and so it's very appropriate he should be here today. And also, of course, today is the anniversary of the abdication of Edward VIII in 1936. And I've just had a piece in one of the papers, discovered a letter. Uh, often we, we ask what, what we've been up to this week, discovered a letter uh, written literally a few hours after the abdication to his mother, talking about the, the family trauma of the abdication, which sort of brings us back to the fact that... Family is trauma in the royal family. This is a me. human story. This is not just some, something yeah. for the tabloids. Well, welcome, Valentine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome to Scandal Central. Can I ask you, are you actually feeling scandalous today? I'm feeling mischievous, as Min always. <laughs> Even That's better. what we like. <laughs> Even better, yes. Well, two couples separated by almost a century, each with their own flaws, with their fans with their critics and with their scandals. What can we learn by comparing them, I wonder? Yes, well, I mean, what do you think are the parallels? I mean, is this a replay of, of, of what happened to Wallace and Edward? And is this what we're going to see happening? Or is this a completely different situation? Um, I think it is. I mean, the, 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 there are huge and obvious differences, such as um, Harry was never going to be monarch. Um, which was a fundamental problem for him because, in a way, that's the root of a lot of his dissatisfaction. He he was low down the pecking order in terms of succession and, and sort of royal precedence. But when he married Meghan, he had they, they as a couple had the greatest uh, pulling power, the greatest amount of stardust around them, uh, and there was there was a kind of disjoint there. I mean, that that was kind of a very important part about why. They felt unhappy and frustrated within the royal in the in the royal family. But couldn't it have been focused within the royal family? I mean, everyone was terribly excited when they came on board. We had the Fab Four; they were going to revolutionise in some ways the, the perception of the royal family. Yes, and I think it was very sad the way they kind of failed to capitalise on that. I mean, I remember thinking at the time it was uh, a shame that she didn't carry on with her acting career. Um, which she supposedly decided not to do that because I think that would have been a way of saying that actually a professional woman can come into the royal family and continue with their professional career. They don't have to sort of immediately become a, a, a full-time ribbon cutter. Well, indeed, I mean, Prince Andrew carried on his naval career as a member of the royal family. So, I mean, it's the precedence there. Yep, yep. And, and, and William, I think William um, was the first person to have a sort of full-time uh, salaried job outside the military uh, uh, as a senior member of the royal family when he worked for um, East Anglian Air Ambulance. He actually gave his salary to charity, but I mean it was a, it was it was a, another step forward in 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 acknowledging that the uh, the members of the royal family can have a job outside the armed forces. 
So why did the royal family get it so wrong, given that they'd sort of accepted some of these changes already? Um, did they get it so wrong? I mean, I think the problem was um, how to handle Harry and Meghan. Um, their, their unhappiness was as much to do with the relationship with the media uh, as it was frustration to how the, how the royal family treated them. Um, and Harry's, you know, frustration with the media predates Meghan. We always have to remember that a lot of his, a lot of his feelings predated Meghan. So he didn't like you know, the royal rotor. The royal rotor is the system by which newspapers, you know, uh, report uh, on on sort of royal occasions. Um, and Harry didn't like it because basically the tabloids who he loathed were members of the royal rotor. Um, but, you know, the couple also had frustrations about doing what they wanted to do and when. Um, but what they kind of failed to understand or failed to accept was that they were part of a bigger machine. Uh, and this is this was something that the Queen was always very strong on, that the royal family is an ins as an institution is always bigger than any one individual within it. Uh, they wanted to do things their own way. And, you know, Megan, when she started, she was kind of brilliant. And I, you know, I wrote this at the time. She she did things a different way. Well, one of the things that always struck me was that even before they got married, uh, she uh, took on, I think, a, a palace suggestion, but she took on the the, the cause of, of of Grenfell and particularly in the form of a community, this community kitchen, the the hub. Um, and it was her idea um, that um, they should do a charity cookbook. And, you know, with her imprimatur on it, 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 it of course, did fantastically well internationally. It did fantastically well. It was a kind of brilliant idea. Because, you know, she's a very bright woman. She's she's sparky. She's full of ideas. And that kind of thing showed that she could have been, um, you know, part of the royal family and, and showed a different way of being a royal consort. Mm. And, and when they went to Australia in um, Australia was 2018. That's when that's the tour that started off with the announcement that she was pregnant. Uh, I remember her. She went to some. I think it was a farm somewhere in Australia. She went to, and she 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 baked some banana bread the night before and took it with her as a gift. Which is no one ever did that before in the royal family. Is is a kind of, I mean. Not everyone liked it as a gesture, but I thought it was kind of fun and interesting. And, and the fact that she was so different and fun and interesting, and was an actress, and was of mixed race, and all of that thing now, which is, we'll get onto, of course, with the Netflix series, become at the heart of the controversy that she was perhaps people were prejudiced against her in some yeah. way. But at the time, I was in Australia actually when the marriage happened, and in the local pub in this you know ordinary suburb of Perth, people went to watch it in the pub dressed up. As if they were invited to the wedding, People, women <laughs> in fascinators. That's brilliant. And it was the, the amount of warmth, and, and actually a lot of it was about the fact that she was different. Yeah, there was a lot. Yeah, there was a lot of enthusiasm, and no, the enthusiasm wasn't uh, universal. There were some, but I I would argue that any suspicion or lack of enthusiasm among people was not because of her race or anything like that, or even necessarily because she was divorced. It's because she was American, and people found that a little hard. I mean, basically, she speaks um, fluent Californian, and that is not a language they understand in Buckingham Palace. Um, it's not a language they understand in large parts of the British Isles either. I mean, that, that, if anything, was the root of a certain amount of the difficulty. But, I mean, we talk about courtiers being, you know, stuffy men in shirts like, like Tommy Lassell's, but, but actually they're young, dynamic people who've been working in PR, all sorts of jobs, some of them are gay, you know, it, it, this it doesn't sort of fit. I mean, surely these people were quite attuned to, to the modern world. Yeah, and the people that were working for Harry and Meghan uh, in the immediate after they got married were sort of bright, um, forward-thinking, non-stuffy. Uh, no, virtually no men, or no men, I think, uh, no men of any significance. So the key figures were all women, and you know, one of them was Samantha Cohen, Sam, Sam Cohen, who um, uh, was Australian. She had worked for the Queen for a long time. Incredibly, real, real sort of problem, problem solver. Um, uh, 
And they had an, uh, an American uh, PR, Sarah Latham, who had worked for, uh, for Freud, who worked for Hillary Clinton, had worked for uh, the Labour government. Um, you know, these, these were not the old stuffed shirts of the and palace. It's, it's funny, the way it's talked about now, certainly in their documentary, is that it was the old stuffed shirts. It was Tommy Lascelles from The Crown. Yeah. But actually, as, I should say, if people don't know, Valentine wrote this amazing book, Courtiers, in which he breaks a lot of stories about what went on in the early years of Meghan and Harry's time in the royal family. And I know you've met and spoken to a lot of the courtiers involved. And yeah, they are they're young women, they're gay men. It's, it's it's not the brigade of guards. Yeah, and these people, the, 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 these key players who were around them uh, immediately after the wedding, they all kind of believed in the project. They were all absolutely up for it. They they wanted they, they, they thought this could be really interesting. Uh, I, I, and I think about you know um, I think when Sarah Latham was their PR um, supremo first took, took over, she kind of believed that you know Megan's problem was that you know her Americanness had sort of meant she didn't really quite understand how things worked and they didn't understand her and she was going to try and help solve that. Is it because she didn't really want to, you know, open a sewage works in Nuneaton? She'd rather fly to California and meet with the Clintons. Or she, it- she she definitely did not want to open sewage works in, in Nuneaton. Uh, there was an interesting conversation I had with, with someone who has worked in the palace who is definitely critical of the stuff shirts, I mean, very, very critical of the stuff shirts, and is definitely sympathetic towards Meghan. And this person said to me, she wanted to be the Beyonce of the royal family. Uh, and I think, you know, I think that's an interesting remark. It, it, it implies that Meghan was interested in uh, a level of celebrity, um, and she wanted the celebrity and, and, and the adulation. And there is a, a remark that I report in my book that's got a lot of attention that... On that tour of Australia, which was their first major overseas tour after getting married, uh, Megan was sort of taken aback with all these crowds and said to someone, I can't believe I'm not getting paid for this. <laughs> which, now, we don't need to put too much store in that because I think there may have been an element of Megan joking. I don't know. I wasn't there at the time. But all the same, that's the prism with which uh, she's thinking about all of this, you know, that in another world, she get paid for this. Does she listen to Harry? I mean, it, she wears the trousers clearly in the relationship. But, uh, obviously, yes. But is, I mean, is, does he have any input? Because in some ways he understood that background. He, un- he could have been a sort of Sam Cohen figure as a mediator. It's, n- it's not so much whether she listens to him, whether he could have had some input, as I think this was, um, to use the current cliche, it was a perfect storm. These were two damaged people with a strong sense of victimhood and they fed off each other and it could have spiraled up and they, that's what was going on so it wasn't yes she did listen to him but she listened to the wrong things it's, right. fu- it's funny we did a couple of programs about diana and, and actually all three of us are royal biographers how funny is that <laughs> that's what, what we do what is the a snoop of royal biographers <laughs> a, a serialization <laughs> Yes, um, yes and my royal biography was on Diana. And I made the case that a lot of what we think we know about Diana is the result of exaggerated claims and grievances, um, which is common in a divorce, further amplified by writers who seized upon them and took sides. And actually, when you dig down in, and you, you, you spend, I, I have sources uh, close to the, or I had sources of, they were telling me, um, as you have with Harry and Meghan, about the early years of the marriage, very, very good sources. Yeah. And it was actually quite a lot more ordinary than it later transpired. Yeah. Um, and I think my, I wonder if, if something similar has happened with Harry and Meghan. A series of personal grievances, maybe some of them quite petty, about hierarchy, about jealousy, about not getting what you want, arguments about tights on bridesmaids and tiaras, have become so kind of overblown maybe to justify this seismic breach so that they have to invoke massive historical forces now, the British Empire, you know, racism. And we'll get onto that, I'm sure. Um, And whether or not they are important factors, they're the ones that they've seized upon because it makes for a better story. Yeah. Uh, Yes, up to a point. But I'd say that one of the critical things is that um, there were seeds sown right at the very beginning. So... 
when when Meghan first emerged as Harry's girlfriend, when that story first broke, um, there was a lot of press intrusion. She had, she was being doorstepped in Toronto, uh, and some of the coverage was not good, should we say, um, verging on the ra- on the racist bits of it, not much, but bits of it. And Harry and Meghan were very uh, upset about this, and um, she Harry lent on his um, communication secretary to put out a statement, uh, which he did. But he, was, Harry was worried that Meghan was going to uh, dump him if he didn't do something about this. And I mean, that was very much his explicit fear. Uh, but also she was having conversations with people uh, in which she was saying to them, you know, this is conversations with household staff saying, I know how this works. You don't care about the girlfriend. So her sense of victimhood her sense of, you know, it's all against me uh, was right there at the beginning. Uh, and certainly some people believe that, you know, she 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 always wanted to be rejected. There was that sense of inviting rejection right at the very beginning. She was creating her own narrative. I think that's she, one of the points you make in yeah, Courtiers. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and the fact that some of this, this that they were filming stuff very early on, you know, they, they were collecting material weren't they for something like this yeah that's certainly what a lot of people believe um so it's not just small grievances that then became amplified there was some kind of narrative right from the beginning of it and were they just not listening to anyone someone like kate could could possibly having gone through a pretty bad experience herself could have been a sort of again a mediator or was yeah well, well there's one interesting thing that, that you know in in uh, the netflix documentary Megan says a lot of time, you know, about how there was there was no coaching. Basically, she said, you know, no one taught you how to cross your legs or sing the national anthem or anything like I had that. Curtsy. Uh, <laughs> but but in fact, um, people say, you know, she was bombarded with stuff. She was given, you know, written documents. She was offered given a list a list of about thirty strong, I'm told, of people who she could see uh, who could help her tell about every aspect of royal life you know everyone from constitutional experts ladies in waiting just the, the whole lot the whole gamut and i think she saw two of these people and that's it she 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 doesn't she doesn't want the outside advice because one of the, i think one of the fundamental things about megan you know, she is a smart person she went to an extremely good university in the united states she, she's she's no dummy at all but she thinks she's the smartest person in the room Always. And did people realise that this was a, a, a problem waiting to happen, that, that Netflix was, was likely? Um, I don't know about that, but um, I, th- one of the, I think one of the things that went wrong is that the people around her, uh, immediately around her, realised there was a problem. But this didn't necessarily get translated or got taken up by the very senior people in the palace. So I'm talking about... Uh, the late Queen's private secretary. I'm talking about the then uh, Prince of Wales's, Prince Charles's private secretary. So these are the absolute key decision makers, uh, policy makers, and they, I think they buried the hand, they buried their hands, heads in the sand about this. But what could they have done? You know, if she was determined on this particular path and her truths. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 well, I think there's a very easy answer to that in that. I don't think you could ever have stopped them leaving. I think that was inevitable. I think they, Harry was so disillusioned with royal life. Um, Meghan wanted such different things that I think their departure was always inevitable. But, you know, we know, we all know there are amicable divorces and acrimonious divorces. Mm-hmm. And if this had been handled better earlier on, if they'd spotted the signs, if they'd sat down, talked to them, if they'd talked about what they wanted, I think it would still ended up ended up in the same way in sense of, in the sense of them leaving, but it would be much more amicable, and you wouldn't have been having them writing, um, you know, performing in documentaries, uh, attacking the royal family from across the Atlantic, or writing books when they air their grievances. Because I mean, the Queen was very adamant: you can't be half in, half out, and so it was that rather intransigent position that actually what caused the problems. Yes, but the the Queen's what you call intransigence, um, some might say, others might say it's a clear-eyed insight, um, uh, isn't what calls it unhappiness. Um, You you could have reached the same position of them leaving um, without the unpleasantness. 
um, the unpleasantness was allowed to build up. It's it's funny that you know I think we're all all three of us rather sceptical to different degrees perhaps about the claims they're making in their in their documentary, and yet it is odd, is it not, that twice now in living memory, two women have come into the royal family with stardust, with extra special appeal, yeah. with new ideas, uh, maybe a new way to connect to the public and the world and communicate, and in both cases. It's not worked out. The family have well; they've either chosen to leave or been rejected, depending on which narrative you choose. Yes, but they both left for very different reasons, didn't they? So Diana left because her marriage broke down because it was because it was an appallingly uh, ill-conceived marriage. I mean, they were so different. I mean, uh, looking back with hindsight, it was absolutely nutty they should get married. Uh, they, they, they were such different characters; they, in a sense, scarcely knew each other. Uh, Megan married very well. She seems to be still very much in love with Harry, and that's that's all great. So there's nothing nothing wrong with you her. I don't think professional jealousy is a factor here. I think it was in the early years with Diana, with with Charles and other members of the family, that she was so good, so effortlessly good at something they were overthought and trained for. You don't think this in the royal family at the moment there were any people looking at Megan and thinking she's getting ahead of herself. She's doing it all wrong, or she's it sounds to be the other way around. She's jealous of Kate. I don't know. Um, I look. Th- th- there may have been an element of of jealousy, but I don't think that's really what went wrong. Okay. Yeah. And coming to the Netflix documentary, what what did you make of it? What were its strengths, and what do you think were the weaknesses? Um, the The strengths were you got a real sense of who Harry and Meghan are, um, and. Uh, you know, you've got a sense of their their relationship. Uh, so, if you want, if you want to hear about their love story, which is according to Harry a great love story, uh, you you and got, it's only just beginning. And it's only just beginning. <laughs> so we've got to have hours of this. And our mum seems very nice. Yeah, we like our mum. So. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that that's that's good. We get a lot of that. That's great. Um, and I think the it does raise interesting questions about you know race in Britain today. I think it over-exits its case there. But um, I think its flaws are, it's all very unfocused. It sort of sprays these accusations out about about sort of um, racism and so on, without really being pointing to any particulars. And their ill treatment of the, of the hands of the royal family, we have so far, three episodes in, so far we've had really... Uh, no sort of concrete evidence of really how, how they were treated badly, um, and you know the race thing is it really goes to the heart of it. There was a lot of one of those one of the episodes which concentrates on race, um, casts it in the context of uh, Brexit, um, which was you know quite a step, um, and the thing about the coverage that they were so. They complain so bitterly about the media coverage in those early days. Whenever anyone writes about that, they refer to three articles. Um, they refer to the Mail Online piece, um, which had the headline about straight out of Compton. They refer to um, a comment piece in the Daily Mail where there was a front page uh, teaser saying, talking about niggling doubt. And they uh, refer to Rachel Johnson's piece in which she talked about exotic DNA. And that pretty much is it. The rest is ghastly stuff on social media. Um, But that's social media. There's a lot of nasty stuff about any subject you like on social media, and you just shouldn't listen to social media, really, if you're going to get upset. Uh, But to characterise the mainstream British media, even tabloid coverage of them in those first few months as racist is... Deeply, deeply misleading. What you know, there was some critical stuff, but the idea that it was racist is completely wrong. The idea they were a lot of it, a lot of it was so incredibly positive. I remember that in in um, that book for Finding Freedom, which is you know written by their great cheerleaders um, about Harry and Meghan, uh, it talks about a visit that the couple made in their early days, official visit to Wales, and it portrays this the coverage of this visit as very negative. And I actually looked it up when I was writing my book. I looked it up, and actually, overwhelmingly positive. That all the papers, the Daily Mail, the Sun, all of them, they all wrote incredibly positive stuff about this. So, 
you know, it's easy to characterize the evil tabloids as being horrid to them. But in fact, the evil tabloids only started being horrid when, after two things. One is when Thomas Markle uh, started saying negative things about his daughter after their relationship collapsed um, in the run-up to the wedding when he didn't turn up and colluded the paparazzi and so on. And the other was um, when staff started leaving uh, and there was uh, there was a drip, drip, drip of stories about staff leaving. Um, which continues to this day. Which which continues to this day. And, you know, Megan didn't like it. Megan was desperate for it to stop. You know, um, she was arguing this is putting across um, a completely misleading impression. And then, turns out, um, it's completely true that, you know, when I, when I revealed in the Times about how uh, she was accused of being a bully towards her staff, that's why people were leaving, because it was, it was such an unpleasant atmosphere and she was such a difficult person to work for. Do you think that report on the bullying will ever be released? And why shouldn't it be released? Uh, well, for people who don't know, there was a report commissioned about allegations yeah. that Megan had bullied her staff. And, and as far as we know, it's been locked in a safe somewhere. It's been locked in a safe and probably has been sort of burned to ashes and the ashes grounded into a powder and the powder flushed down the loo. I mean, they, they, they will not not be releasing that, that, that report ever. Uh, and there's, in my view, there's a very simple reason why they're not going to release that report is because, yeah, I'm guessing that it has some critical stuff about Meghan in there. I don't know. But um, they, they, the palace do not want to further inflame things. No, of course. They don't, you know, and, and if they release that and there's critical stuff in there, it will produce another another round of tit-for-tat accusations and, uh, and more... It's, of, it's almost as if it's a dialogue of the deaf here, isn't there? You know, Meghan and Harry are saying it's all about race. Her, their critics are saying it's all about her behaviour. Yeah. And then the Netflix documentary doesn't even engage. Maybe the, the, the final three episodes will doesn't seem to engage with allegations about bullying. They want to make it yeah, about race. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm probably, sure, they think they're on firmer ground. I'm, Maybe they are. I'm sure they will uh, address the bullying um, in the in the last three episodes. It, it would be extraordinary if they don't. Uh, we should say we're recording this on the Sunday before the last three episodes drop, so we don't actually know. Well, there's a trailer, but yes, we're getting into hints, but we can imagine. Yeah. But I, I'd but like you... to say something just briefly about David Olasoga and his contribution. I worked with David. Well, yeah. I was executive producer of a show last year on the archaeology of slavery. And David gave us an absolutely brilliant interview, which I have to say, I thought I knew a lot about British history. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. Yeah. It's very, very upsetting. It's stomach-turningly upsetting. Yeah. Some of the things that were done by this country um, you know, many hundreds of years ago, but have we ever... Do we? Learn enough about it? Probably not. Have we properly explained away, apologised, given reparations? Probably not. All of that stuff is true. Whether that is fair to connect that to Meghan and Harry's experience, perhaps as three white blokes, we shouldn't be ruling on this, but they clearly think there is a connection there, a plausible connection to that deep, shameful history and what happened in the last couple of years with them. I mean, what did you think when you saw all that? Did it make you feel manipulated or do you think it was fair? Uh, I thought that what he had to say was interesting. In the, the, you, talk, he, you talk about all, in schools, all we are taught is the, uh, the abolition of slavery. Uh, I, I felt that was a, 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 a remark that hit home. I thought, well, you know, actually we, we were never taught at school about, you know, actually what went on and I think, you know, and, and the evils of the slave, slave trade. So uh, that was a fair point, fair enough point. Um, I don't think, you know, it just keep it keeps on harking back that Megan's treatment was to do with race and I would strongly, strongly argue that it wasn't, which is not to say that, you know, that some of the early articles weren't racially tinged and, you know, can be heavily criticised. I would completely agree with that. But, you know, uh, when it turned critical of her, it was not because of her race. No, I, I actually do agree with that. But I also would say that this, the royal family does seem to have a problem reading the room a little bit. I mean, take Susan, yeah. the Susan Hussey affair. Yeah. We're yeah. all a little bit sympathetic, I'm sure, to her. I'm sure she didn't mean to give any offence. But to let her loose in a room full of young activists, is that... I don't know, what do you well, I, I mean, I know Lady Susan Hussey a little bit. Um, she is a warm, intelligent, empathetic human being. As far as I know, not racist in the slightest. Um, she clearly got that conversation wrong. Um, 
but you know she's been in a room with you know black people activists young people many many times in her life uh, and you know fair enough yes and ha- you know hasn't uh, hasn't mucked up like that before um but you know this was an incredibly badly timed thing to happen to the royal family i mean it was you know awful on 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 so many levels um when when harry and megan in their oprah interview uh last year made that sort of Im- implicit accusation of racism uh, aimed at the royal family um at the time i thought that was the most damaging thing the most damaging bit of the oprah interview because you're talking about when they said somebody had speculated on the color of the baby the child that's right that's not just speculated but expressed concern that's a word i've seen used um yes i mean you know who knows what that conversation how it actually unfolded um but yeah that was the that 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 was the implication now i i thought that was incredibly damaging for the royal family i thought i thought it was going to damage the royal family's reputation abroad and by implication it was going to damage britain's reputation abroad you know we we got a racist royal family it's a racist country uh that didn't seem to unfold in the way i thought it did you know a year later i thought actually it doesn't really seem to have stuck and then lady susan hussey happens to get happens uh and it, it all resurfaces just at the time when harry and Meghan to come out with their stuff which as we discussed is you know racially charged uh, I thought it was incredibly poor, bad timing, and you know I kind of watch with interest to see how this progresses. I mean, do you think they were too harsh to 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 to, to get rid of Hussey, or, or for her? I mean, she resigned. I think. Well, it's very interesting to consider what would have happened if the Queen had been on the throne at the time. Um, uh, I I think Lady Susan would still have offered to resign. Um, I'm not sure it would have happened with the swiftness um, that it did. I mean, don't forget, this was within a small number of hours of the story breaking. She had resigned. Um, And I thought that just showed um, a a clear-eyed, if you like, or or brutal. Ruthless. uh, Ruthless. Ruthless is a better word than brutal. Uh, a clear-eyed or ruthless approach by the palace. We have to try and stop this uh, as soon as we can. Yeah, and I suppose they knew what was coming anyway. But I'm um, just going back to the Netflix. I mean, it was sort of mood music for the Americans, really. They're not really worried about the reaction here, are they? No, you I know, think Netflix be- have made this program for you know for the world and mainly American viewers. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think Harry and Meghan have lost this country. So I mean, that's. Yeah. Well, you mentioned though that um, you know damages Britain's image, damages the royal family's image. I mean, it's at a time when Black Lives Matters is such a big campaign um, in America still, and clearly Meghan has been welcomed. He got a big award, didn't they, from the Kennedy Foundation, yeah. or one of the many Kennedy Foundations. Yeah. Um, you sort of feel when the next royal visit to America takes place, it could get quite nasty. I mean, has she put a target on their backs to an extent? Yeah, well, you know, for, for um, protests and things like that. I mean, that. the Royal Security, one of the former Royal Security people, has said that. I know. I mean, uh, and I don't think we should necessarily take that security person uh, too seriously. Um, I think that, you know, when uh, William and Kate were in Boston, I was there with them. That was at the time when, um, on the on the first day of that visit, the uh, Lady Susan Hussey story broke. On the second day of that visit. Uh, the first trailer from the Netflix documentary was released. So, you know, there was a lot of kind of um, incoming <laughs> directed at that draw. And and yet they were they were greeted very warmly. They went down very well. Um, they Basically, they were talking about green issues. Boston's a pretty green city. They're quite keen on that kind of thing. They've got a very green mm. uh, mayor there. Um, you know, it sort, of, it sort of overshadowed the visit a lot, but it didn't completely derail it. And you know, so in the states, it isn't affecting, for example, the attitude towards Prince and Princess of Wales, because there does seem to be a very personal element to to, to a lot of what they're saying in the in the yeah. documentary. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think so so far. But we'll we'll, we'll we've you got know, three more episodes. We've got three more episodes to go, yeah. we'll, and we'll we'll see. You know, and of course, you can talk about the racism of the institution as a whole, and and there's no doubt, for instance, that that they. 
there are areas where they've got a long way to go. I mean, there's never been uh, a black person in a senior household position. I mean, the, the, Charles has employed uh, one or two black people in, in senior middling positions. Uh, the Queen's, one of the Queen's last Aquarius was uh, a black officer. Uh, but really, none, none of the none of the major positions have ever been held by anyone from an ethnic minority, and I, 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 they're re- they're quite poor on that. They, they, they need, but individually, if you talk about the king, and if you talk about the Prince of Wales, uh, I think you'd be very hard pressed to make any accusation of racism stick against them. They they they're clearly not. When you were doing your research for this book, actually, I'll turn the question around. Were you actually doing research for a book, or did this story kind of come to you that there was rumblings in in Meghan and Harry's household? And and that must have been quite an exciting, because I think you were maybe the very first person to report the allegations of bullying. How did that happen? Um, I... I... <laughs> I can't really tell you how the how I came to break the story of the allegation. You know, I've, I've got sources I spoke to. I spoke to a lot of people, uh, including uh, victims of bullying. And then, you know, a short while after writing that story, um, the thought popped up. Well, you know, Megan, particularly in her Oprah interview, she talked. She she drew the distinction between the institution, the people who work for the institution, and the members of the family. And it just raised this question, well, who are these people? Who are, who are the men in grey suits? Because Meghan clearly didn't like them. Before her, Diana clearly didn't like them. Fergie didn't like them. And Harry doesn't like them. And Harry, uh, there's a very funny thing about um, Fergie. So when Fergie was around, um, Sir Robert Fellows was the Queen's private secretary, and he was something like, her first cousin once removed, yes, yeah, um, and she couldn't bring her, bring herself in her memoir, in her ghost memoir, she couldn't bring herself to mention him by name. She just called him Mister Z. Uh, <laughs> funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did promise the uh, our loyal audience uh, that we'd be comparing Harry and Meghan's story to another story of royal well, rebels. Uh, which, of course, we're lucky enough to have in the room an expert on, Andrew. Well, I mean, I think Valentine's right. They're slightly different situations. And I think Meghan is a much more dangerous figure. She's much more manipulative. She's much cleverer than Wallace, who's a much more passive figure. But we do see some of the same tropes, the the, the, the problems of finance, which they, they raised, the discussions there, the problems over security, the uh, attempt to curate the story through tame biographers or by muzzling the press through suing them. You know, there is the exploitation of the royal brand. So, um, you know, there are certain parallels there. Um, I mean, my interesting, I'm interested to know where, where, if you were advising the royal family, what would you say to them? Just dignified mm, silence? Good question. Or, or, I mean, they've just got to sit this out and take the blows. Um, I think probably they have to sit it out and take the blows. Uh, I know that some people want the king to show some leadership on this. Um, but I'm not sure what that means. Showing leadership, there, there are a lot of there are there are a lot of calls out there, aren't there, for them to be stripped of their HRH styles or, or their Duke and Duchess of Sussex titles. Uh, I think that is an irrelevance. I think it's foolish. It looks petty. Uh, it, it looks petty. Mm. It looks vindictive, and it achieves absolutely nothing. I mean, if you strip of their titles. Who cares? Mm. They're still they're Harry and Meghan. They got they've got beyond that because they, 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 they've got that. Well, the, the people that you, who spoke to you and, and whose comments fill your book, they are not. Most of them are not working for the palace anymore. Do you think they will stay silent? Uh, I I think they may occasionally say things um, to people unattri- like you, un- unattributedly to people like <laughs> you know. me. I don't think they're going to show their heads above the parapet. It'll I mean, be an Amazon documentary to attack the Netflix documentary. <laughs> exactly. Uh, because after all, you've got to remember, these these people have got careers uh, to think about. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily... If you, if you come out um, and raise your head, uh, it doesn't necessarily do you any good professionally. So um, I don't think so. And, well, and what do you see for, for Harry and Meghan now? A life in exile? Well, they're, they're not coming back. You can tell you that much. I mean, guineas to gooseberries. I'd, I'd stake my house on that. So they're not coming to the coronation because I mean, you know, the clearly oh. present with Wallace uh, and Edward not being invited to the wedding of the Queen, not being invited to the coronation. You know, so there is a precedent there. 
Um, yes, I saw there was front page one of the papers um, suggesting you know a clamor of voices saying they shouldn't be invited to the coronation. Uh, I think they might be invited and might find an excuse not to come. Um, the trouble is if they do come, it's such a distraction at a time of you know what should be sort of celebration um to have the sort of royal family so proper raise its head once again would be you know a terrible distraction. And what about a reconciliation perhaps not now perhaps in five years time could you see william and harry kind of hugging it out somewhere perhaps at some resort in the sierra nevadas i think you're right about the time scale i think you know five years is a kind of minimum on that one um we have to get through the the Netflix. We actually have to get through Harry's book, and and those two, yeah, Harry and Meghan, they have to kind of find a new way of living their life. They have to do, find a way of doing something positive. Um, I mean, everyone agrees they they can't keep harking on about the past, airing their resentments. Um, it, it it becomes boring for a start, and they'll they'll lose their audience. But also, more importantly, it's it it just it's just negative, and that you know they've got a lot to offer. Uh, and they should concentrate on what they have to offer rather than what, what they've got to moan about. And you think the, the family could do something, a, a big gesture on, on race, perhaps uh, a decolonization of their art collection has been suggested. You know, there's apparently, I mean, we saw the montages, didn't we, in the Netflix but, film. But they um, weren't from the Royal Collection. They were from other houses. Is that what I say? Okay. Well, there's, a, there's quite a lot of uh, clever editing in the film, actually, I have to say, as a TV producer. You mentioned that they would take an article, one article, um, say, the, the Rachel Johnson comment, and then they would intercut it with a, a crazy woman on the bus abusing yep. some you know, awful scenes to kind of create a portrait of... I don't, I don't recognise that portrait of the country I live in. No, exactly. Um, At all. Yeah, and that's why I think dignified silence is the best thing. But I mean, in some ways, appeasing them is not going to help. I mean, you don't want to tit for tat. But actually, even if you're silent, they're, they're going, there's going to be a grievance found. I mean, that was certainly the case with Wallace and Edward. So, you know, it, it's going to be very different, difficult. I mean, you freeze, you can freeze them out, but there's still, there's still, uh, um, uh, uh, there are supporters between the states there who are going to buy into whatever narrative they want to create. Yeah, I mean, I think freezing them out is 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 a misguided, foolish tactic. Um, you should always uh, express warmth. You should always leave the door open to them. Not a door for them to come back on a permanent basis, but a door to say you're you're welcome here because in, in in the line they trot out on a regular basis. They're much loved members of the family. Yeah, but there are always going to be problems with their passport, aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting how quietly uh, Megan's uh, desire to be a Britishism citizen got uh, put to one side. <laughs> right. We should talk about courtiers because we've got a few more minutes. And I mean, I know you. Well, we were both very impressed with the book because it seemed to be to break a lot of new ground and to take a, a completely different look at royalty. Uh, and actually, these are the, the real players. Uh, and, and that relationship, I think, between the crown and 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 the state and you know cabinet secretary that that sort of triangle I, th I thought was very interesting. No, it's good. Um, well, we had Patrick Jeffson on the show. I don't know if you know he was. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. He, Patrick and I are great friends. We made, we travelled the world and made a series together um, again about twenty years ago. Um, but I think he would very much recognise the portrait that you paint in that book of his life. Um, and it, it is sometimes finding a clever way to say no. Yeah. Um, to stop the royal. Um, you know, the royal person making a fool of themselves yeah, or doing something a bit silly yeah. or, you know, offending somebody else. And maybe Harry and Meghan never had that. They were in their own little world, obsessed with their own grievances, seeing conspiracies. Well, they, also, they needed I, a Patrick Jefferson. Well, I think, you know, Valentine's point that in some ways, they, you know, if you can see the bigger picture as the Queen did, that we're all working together to one end. And I think they didn't feel that. They, they, they were not team players. Yeah. No, I think Meghan... For all her good points or her faults, I don't think Megan is a team player. Well, if so, if she is, it's a team of one. It's difficult, yeah. I mean, have you got questions about courtiers, things that struck you reading it, uh, insights or new new ways well, of looking at it? Well, as you know, it. we talked about this at great length. I, am still, I still feel that there are unanswered questions about the way in which briefings were done about Diana, um, and without naming any names, friends, perhaps even courtiers around Charles, during those very difficult days where he was very much on the defensive after the Morton book, 
some things were said and some information was put out there that I still think that there might be a reckoning for that one day. And I, I suspect I know, I don't suspect, I do know, there are journalists still looking into this. But in some ways, the briefing war still goes on. And I think, you know, it's clear that there was briefing against Meghan, you know, despite the, the favourable publicity, certainly there is now. Um, you know, is there any way we're ever going to get away from this, 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 these different camps? I mean, there is, there is black ops <laughs> operates. And yeah, yes, there, there, just, there are there not are just one court, is there? There's always rival courts. There, there are camps. Um, but I think one key point is the extent to which uh, Prince William has very much discouraged negative briefing against his brother. I'm not saying there aren't some people who say things, um, but he's done his very best to keep that absolute low key, um, not not to have a not to not to encourage a tit for tat war. He he does not want that. So in some ways this has been the first great test of the new new reign, hasn't it? And indeed of him. And and you think that they've come out of it well. I mean they've they haven't put a foot wrong really. They've just well. You saw they, them. You saw them last week in America. Did you feel that they were riding the storm? Yeah, I think they they're, they're quite good at they're quite good at riding the storm. Um, they get on with it. Um, they must have had a few deep breaths before they stepped out stepped out of the car or stepped out of wherever they were staying. I always remember I was with them in I think Indonesia or Singapore or somewhere like that um, when the topless pictures of Kate in that French uh, magazine Closer were published in 2012 or something like that. Uh, and what was noticeable about that was that you know, the, the day that story broke, um, you could see William going out and about, doing his, carrying out his royal engagements, absolute look of thunder about him. He was absolutely furious and couldn't really hide it. Kate, best foot forward, smile on her face, did the job. She was so focused, so professional. And you can you can see why that happens, because, you know, she's the one who's been wronged, but he's the one who feels he failed to protect her. So that, that that's that's why he's so upset about it. You know, as a husband, I can kind of understand with it. But, you know, her her focus and her professionalism was, her professionalism was very striking that day. Do you think that maybe there's a little bit of that dynamic in play with Harry and William, in that Harry feels he's protecting Meghan, William feels he's protecting Kate, Kate oh, yeah. and Meghan had some row over some nonsense about some tights or something? There's, there's, there's a huge amount uh, in Harry. Um, it's about protecting her. It's about protecting his family. He's he's really very strongly motivated by the the idea of protecting those around him. And I think hijacking Diana's memory in, 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 in some ways was, was I thought was one of the interesting things about the, the, the documentary. Yeah, I mean, you know, Harry uh, comparing uh, Meghan to Diana very strongly, very explicitly was interesting. And uh, I thought it was rather cringy when she has her baby, I don't, I'm not quite sure which baby was, presumably Lily, uh, and she's showing Lily a picture of Diana. Look, you know, there's Grandma mm -hmm. Diana. I thought, oh. Geez, this is this is purely for the camera. Is, is this what you normally do? And your baby can sh show pictures of their dead grandmother. I'm not sure that would really happen. I think it seemed very, very cynical. But I mean, the outsiders, people like Kate and Camilla, I mean, they in some ways are, are the future of the royal family, aren't they? They're the people who sort of leaven the mixture and perhaps humanise the, the members of the royal family. Yes, uh, Camilla in particular is a very important figure um, because she brings a bit of sanity to Charles's life. Uh, she's a very important advisor for Charles. I mean, she 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 brings there an understanding of the real world that perhaps he doesn't have in, in the same way. Uh, yeah, Camilla is incredibly important. And are you confident that this is just a little storm in a teacup and the, the monarchy will weather it, or do you think we're at a dangerous moment where where things could could topple? Uh, I think they'll weather it because they weather everything. I'm not saying that that means the monarchy will be there forever. But I think that they'll get through this. If we think of the things we've got through in the last few decades, I mean, you know, the Annus Horribilis, the death of Diana, they were pretty bad times. They really were in yes. terms of the standing of the royal family, and they survived. And actually, I don't think anything, even though it's dominating the conversation around the world, I'm not sure there's anything in the Netflix series yet that comes close to the full broadside of Diana and Morton's collaboration. 
1992. Exactly. And that was an extraordinary thing. Yeah. Um, the, the, unless he starts really naming names and pointing fingers in these last three episodes, it's still a relatively minor storm compared to that, I would yeah. say. And, and, and one has to remember that you know, they, had, they had their first shot um, with Oprah, and there was no real reason to suspect that they were holding anything back with Oprah. So I've always thought this series would probably be less rather than more. I may be proved wrong. There may be great bombshells to drop on Thursday, but we'll have to see. Well, if so, I'll have to have you back. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, that's been brilliant the, to have your for insights. For the moment, and what a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much for joining us in, our, in Scandal Central in Kentish Town. Oh, wait a minute. We have a question from the audience. Why don't you ask the question, Theo? How would a dino magnet have gone? Good question. Well, Harry has already answered that question. He says they would have got on like a house on fire. Um, I think that they might have had their clashes at some point. I could, two strong-minded individuals, it's impossible to believe they wouldn't have had occasional uh, bumpy moments. They wouldn't have locked arms and against the rest of them. <laughs> there would have been a certain amount of locking arms and there would have been a certain amount of locking horns. But she would have protected. We wouldn't have had the, the instance of viciousness against William and Kate if Diana had been around. She would somehow have hopefully mediated there. One would have hoped so, yeah. I often wonder about Diana. I think she'd have been on Twitter all the time. I think she would have been one of those kind of <laughs> people. Uh, much as I admire her, I'm, I'm a big Diana fan. All right. Well, unless there's any more questions from our huge audience. I mean, we would love questions from the viewers, things that they'd like us to talk about. Yes, always. Like we love our interview. feedback. We are getting some feedback. Uh, and great. And, you know, we're, we've been very lucky to have a very authoritative speaker on the subject. But have you got points that even though you can't make them in this program you would like us to raise in future programs and perhaps to ask valentine to comment on even just by email that'd be lovely thank you so much and thank you valentine again and goodbye thank you for listening to the scandal mongers podcast this has been a podcast world production you can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org placing scandal mongers in the heading or via our social media links within the show's bio Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.